Ladies and gentlemen, if a video could sum up a, a thousand words, if a video could sum up an ancient problem, if a video could sum up a current battle that each of us is facing in our hearts, this is that video. Okay, uh, both. I want to make this is our last match. Everyone understand? Last game of the season. Aiden, eyes on me. Aiden, eyes on me. I want to make sure you guys remember what our goals are when we step on this field. Jackson with an X. What's one of our goals when we step on this field? Uh, to, to do your best. Okay, not even close. Uh, Blaine with a Y. Blaine's not here. Blaine, did you get over that bloody nose you got? Okay, good. What's one of our goals when we step on this field? I like the second half. Nate, you got another one? Rylan, you don't have any other goals. Aiden? Okay, negative Ghost Rider. All right. Did we learn anything this season? Yes. Our goal, our goals, no, not even close. Our goals are, listen, listen, our goals are to hit dingers. Everybody better have their eyes on me. Eyes on me, Rylan. Hit dingers. Disgrace the pitcher's family. Make the other families, other players cry and stomp their butts into the ground. Does everyone understand that? Does everybody understand that? Look, fellas, look, look, look. There are two types of people in this world. There's two types of people in this world. There's winners and there's losers. And just so that we're clear, every time we step on this field, our goal is to be a winner. And if your dad has said, oh, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, just as long as you have fun, well, I hate to say it, your dad's a loser, okay? So let's get, out, let's get our hands in. That team's pretty good, but we are gooder. So let's go gooder on three. Let's go gooder on three. There we go, hands in, hands in, hands in. Come on, talk to your English teacher here. Gooder on three. One, two, three, gooder! I love that man. I really do. I mean, he, don't make no mistake about it. He's a misinformed jerk, but at least he's not a phony, right? I mean, I've raised four kids and they've all competed at varying levels of sports around town. And what cracks me up is, I mean, he's really just saying what most of us are thinking uh, when our kids get into these sports. I mean, yes, we want our kids to have a good time, but why is there something so important about winning? Like, if truth be told, I'd rather have my kid violently puking over the fence with a gold medal, right? Than just like being last in the race and going, Dad, I'm having a great time, right? What is it? What's in there that causes that? Welcome to week two of our Easter series, V is for Victory, and we're continuing to look at this eternal battle for peace. Here's, here's the underlying concept we introduced week one. There will be no peace for you. There will be no peace in this world. No peace out there, no peace in our cities, no peace in our homes, no peace in our churches or our offices until there is peace in here. In fact, 
This is where the battle Jesus came to win is. Now today, we celebrate on the church calendar, Palm Sunday, and it's an ironic day for me. Jesus, if you go home and look at it in your Bibles in a couple of places, uh, I think it's in Luke and, and Matthew, you'll see it's marked by the words uh, over the story, Jesus' triumphant entry. Which is always a little strange to me, because I understand that people were yelling out to him, but, but anybody remember what Jesus is doing? He's crying. I think part of the reason he weeps amidst people waving their palms and crying out his name is he knows it's a giant exercise in missing the point. Because they were looking for a victory, but not the kind he came to give. They were looking for an outward one that would leave their insides unchanged, and it would be a temporary victory at best. They're ushering Jesus in as a warrior king who they think will help Israel overturn Roman power, who will help them win, because they want to be winners. But see, Jesus understands the weapons of his warfare are quite different. Jesus comes to bring peace, not out there, but in here, to our hearts and our souls, because there will be no peace out there until there is peace in here. In fact, many of you know it would be that same crowd once they realize that Jesus did not come to make them win as they had hoped. It'd be those same people that days later would be yelling in the streets, crucify them. This morning in our search for peace, the kind of peace that settles in our hearts and changes our homes, I want to introduce you to a very ancient war and another really haunting question. If you were here last week, I gave you one haunting question that had to do with Israel's great prophet Elijah. And if you remember, Elijah is running from his destiny. He's running from God. He finds himself uh, far away from God, in a cave, hiding, despite all the things that God had already shown him, and he's full of fear. And uh, God comes to Elijah, and he looks at him, he asks him this question, he goes, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, if you thought that was a thought-provoking question, I hope you asked yourself that a few times this week. I don't know where you were, where that question might have popped into your mind. Wait till you hear today's. Many of you are familiar with the creation account in Genesis, and the world of inner and outer peace into which we were created and placed. In fact, the Bible uses a word for that kind of peace. It's a word, shalom. It's usually today used as a greeting, but in its original Hebrew, shalom meant to be safe and at peace in mind, body, or estate. It spoke of completeness and fullness and wholeness. And this is our creation story. This is how we live with God and with one another and with our creation in our creation. And it was sin and the resulting brokenness in ourselves and our relationship with God and with one another where the war started to heat up. And right after our fall, we see our first and what I think is maybe our greatest battle. Jump into this story with me. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Walk through this, because I know you've heard this story, but I think I'm going to show you something this morning that you never really thought of before the fall results in us quite, I don't know, like the first thing that happens, primarily in us seeing things differently. And if that's the truth, what would the writer of this story, what would he want to communicate changed? What did they see differently? 
was it that they suddenly, when they ate of this apple, when they did what God told them not to do, did they, were their eyes open and they suddenly realized, shoot, we should have listened to God? Perhaps they, when their eyes were open, they took a look around the garden and realized, you know, this is really more beautiful than I had previously thought. Or maybe when their eyes were open, they suddenly realized, shoot, our, our ability to stay in this garden is now tenuous at best. What would be the primary thing that they would notice, that they would see when their eyes were opened? Then the eyes of both of them were open. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I'm naked. I gotta cover myself. And see, I think the context of the story is, is not that Adam realized Eve was naked. I think that would take us in a very different direction. I think the, the context of the story is they each noticed something about themselves suddenly shoot, I'm uncovered, I'm naked. Because prior to this, there was no thought of covering or clothing or hiding or judgment. There was a sense of shalom, this inner peace and confidence and rest. Their eyes were on God. Their eyes were on each other. They were not on themselves. Their worth and value, their identity, it was all driven and given by God. But in their broken state, they took their eyes from them from God and placed them suddenly upon themselves and they realized I'm naked then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said where are you what are you doing here of course, God knows the answer. The question is, once again, rhetorical. It's meant to help them process. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. The very first emotion introduced post-fall. Loss of shalom, eyes off God and others and onto ourselves. The very first emotion post-fall is fear. This is why it is the number one thing Jesus said when he walked the earth, do not be afraid. Now, what were they afraid of? As I've read the story, I figured they were afraid because God was going to condemn them, because God was going to punish them, because God was going to be angry with them. I would think that's what I would be afraid of. But listen now, because this is a really deep question. I didn't think about it until I was writing the talk. What if there is a fear so primal in each of us that it could outweigh the fear of God? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked. And so I hid. What if the fact that you realize you're naked is more fearful to you and scares you more than even God. Because once we realize that we're naked, we spend a lot of time trying to cover and hide. It's been going on for a long time. I, I have four kids, and maybe if you're a parent, you can relate to this. And the very haunting and painful question which God is about to ask. See, when my kids were little, probably like yours, clothes were really just an afterthought, right? 
Remember your kids prancing through the house and you're thinking, geez, I hope nobody just shows up because they're going to think we got a nudist colony running in here, right? The kids are just running around. Nobody's thinking anything of it. In fact, I remember one time when we were on a road trip, my son John was maybe three years old or so, and I introduced him to the, one of the great privileges of being a guy. He had to go to the bathroom. I said, there's no problem here, son. Let me show you how we do this. Uh, and I pulled over on Route 80, and right there on the side of the road, isn't it good to be a man, right? And he just thought this was the coolest thing ever. It unleashed in him a sense of freedom that he probably shouldn't have known about because it wasn't too much uh, later where I got a call from my next door neighbor saying to me, hey, John's out in your front lawn naked, pee. And uh, I looked out there, there he was in all his glory, a little stream coming out. And I looked at him and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you said it was all right. See, something happens to Shalom. You see it with our kids maybe best. Look, it starts innocently enough. Because remember, when they're young, they don't actually even care what anybody thinks of them. They don't even care what you think of them, right? I mean, their first word is no. Their first action is usually throwing something at me. They don't really care that much. But then around three or four, all of a sudden, when I'd come home from work, I was greeted by the same statement. Hey, Dad, look at me. Hey, Dad, look at me. And I have four kids, so then it became a chorus of, no, look at me. No, look at me. No, look, I'm, no, no, I can do it better, faster, higher, stronger. <laughs> then they got on the school bus. Remember the first time your kid came home from the school bus? The little kid, the little innocent child that you loved, and all of a sudden you were aware that he no longer thought the world was such an innocent place. The first time he got his feelings hurt because somebody told him he couldn't catch or he was dumb. The first time somebody told your little girl that she wasn't pretty or very popular. I remember thinking about this one time when I have two daughters and when my first daughter was, I don't remember how old she was going to school. and. I was in my bedroom and I could kind of catch a glimpse through the door and out and she was in the bathroom and she was putting on makeup and doing her hair and she was in there for a very long time. And I felt this little thing in me start to rage because I started going, who told you that you needed to spend all this time working on makeup? You're beautiful, stop it. Who are you doing that for? And I think it's with that same heart of a father that God asks a very haunting question and, and, and I think that we need to ask it to ourselves. Here's what God says. I, 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 because I was naked, so I hid. And he said to them, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you weren't enough? Who told you that you weren't right? Who told you you weren't good? Who told you you weren't smart enough or successful enough or pretty enough or tough enough? Who told you that? Who told you you had to be prettier, busier, richer, stronger, tougher? Who told you you were not good? Who told you you were not enough? And see, then the corresponding question which comes with it is, what have you been trying to cover yourself with? Now, where have you been trying to hide? Because once you realize you're naked, 
and you need to cover and hide. Once fear starts to creep in over what others think about you, your heart is never, ever the same again. And our need for constant and more approval from others, for it starts within us what, what many have called an addiction approval. And make no mistake about it, this is an addiction. We all have it. For men, I mean, you know, I, I do a lot of counseling, so I'll give you some of the stuff I see and hear all the time. For men, we often got it put on us from our dads, our well-meaning dads. I've loaded it onto my kids, I'm sure, unfortunately. I remember when I was a kid, you know, my dad was uh, very concerned that we would be tough guys. And so he used to do what he called man training with us. So, you know, he'd wrestle us in the living room and throw us around, and my mother would be going, what are you doing to the kids? You know, I'm, well, I'm teaching them to be a man. And then he would tell us, you never lose a fight, never. You never lose a fight. You always get the first punch in, you never lose a fight. Which was great advice until I got to high school and I was like 5'10", 120. I mean, it's really hard to be a tough guy at 5'10", 120. And so now, somebody told me I wasn't strong enough or tough enough. I meet a lot of guys that are still trying to impress their dad, 50 years old, 60 years old. I think about it, why is a man's identity so tied to his job and his success? It's almost true of every guy I've met. Why, do you, think about this, why, why would, a, why would a man let his marriage wilt and die let his children grow up without him, all for a job that the minute he leaves will remember him no more. Why? Because i got to cover myself. And see, if you think I'm really successful, that's pretty good covering on somebody. Now, for ladies, see, guys are fairly simple. I'm not sure if you've discovered this fact. You ladies are a little more complex. But I do see a couple things come through all the time. One that really bothers me as a father of two daughters, there's several things that, that, that women use to cover themselves. The first is this, when every little girl becomes two or three years old and she walks into a room, what is the first thing that everybody says to her? Oh, you are so pretty. And what do we communicate over and over to every little girl? Your value is tied up in how you look. That's your identity. Some of you have carried that around forever. For others, it's my identity is wrapped up in the guy I got. Some of our daughters are going to marry jerks because they're, they're good looking or rich. That's how Joan got me, for example. <laughs> you're just stuck. All of a sudden you're like, what was I doing, right? I was just trying to cover myself. It's for this reason, the writer of Proverbs, this book of wisdom, this ancient book of wisdom in the scripture says, you know, it's dangerous to be concerned with what others think about you, but if you would trust in the Lord, you'd be safe. One writer put it this way. This is how pervasive this is, guys. We live in bondage to what others think uh, of us, and the addiction takes many forms. If we find ourselves often getting hurt by what others say, do you, or do you not like to be criticized? Are you hypersensitive to criticism? By, if we find ourselves getting hurt by people expressing other than glowing opinions about us, we probably have it. If we habitually, care, uh, if we habitually compare ourselves with other people, if we find ourselves getting competitive, how about this, people? If we find, how, how, any of you have fought over a board game recently? 
If we find ourselves getting competitive in the most ordinary situations, we probably have it. If we live with a nagging sense we aren't important enough or special enough or we get envious of another success, we probably have it. If we keep trying to impress important people, if we, we probably have it. If we're worried that somebody might think ill of us, should they find out we are an approval addict, we probably have it. And like other addictions, we will go, and make no mistake about this, we will go to great lengths to get a fix of approval. This is why we do the silly things we do. This is how they're able to sell $10,000 purses and $20,000 watches. But yet, like other addicts, what we find is we get a hit and it doesn't last forever, and so we keep coming back for more. As approval addicts, we are always at the mercy of somebody else's opinion. There's an old preacher's story that goes like this. I was leaving my last church and a woman at the farewell reception was weeping. Don't be sad, I said. I'm sure the next pastor will be better than me. That's what they said the last time she cried, but they keep getting worse. <laughs> See, the addiction is so deep in there, right? It starts in the garden and Cain felt out sacrificed by Abel and kills his brother over, over who is doing best at being acceptable to God. Do you see what this does to religion and how religion gets insidiously caught up in it? The primary symptom is a tendency to confuse our performance in some aspect of life with our worth as a person. And the result is we seek a kind of approval from people that can only satisfy if it came from God. See, this battle to clothe ourselves in the approval of others, to create for ourselves some kind of identity based on performance, becomes very dangerous. This has led some of you to very bad places. You even see it with Jesus. Many of the religious leaders of the day, they were beginning to be drawn to Jesus. John tells us what happened. At the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they'd be put out of the synagogue for what was it they were really afraid of? Were they afraid of reprisal? Were they afraid of uh, fear for their lives, their reputation, their jobs, their families, their homes? No, there was something much stronger that they were afraid of. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And see, this is a profound, this is a deep, profound truth that starts a war within us and a war out there. In fact, Paul rails against it to the church he planted in Galatia. He goes to them, look, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant because it is really hard to follow God when your identity and worth are coming from someone else. There's a sociologist, George Mead, he wrote about what he called the generalized other. This is whose impression we're worried about. The mental representation we carry of this group of people in whose judgment we measure our success, our failure. Our sense of esteem is largely wrapped up in our thoughts about their appraisal of our worth. John Ortberg said to think of them as the kind of mental jury box containing all the people who rate us like so many judges that evaluate an Olympic skater. Almost certainly for every one of us in the room, our parents are in that box, maybe some school teachers, some significant members of our peer group, our boss, coworkers, neighbors, perhaps others in our profession. See, here's the thing, it gets really crowded, that jury box. And of course, 
here's really the interesting part. We really never know for sure the totality of what any other person is actually thinking about us. Now, can I give you the irony of the, the generalized other? Here's the irony. The generalized other isn't thinking about you at all. The truth is most of us are too busy worried about what others are thinking about us to worry about thinking about others. I told my kids when I went to high school, you know, high school is so hard. I said, listen, at West Morris Central, um, the pinnacle of, of social status is to sit on the stage um, in the lunchroom. You know, as a freshman, you can't even get in the lunchroom, right? And you work your way up and eventually, like, the, the, the cream of the crop gets to sit on the stage. And I said to my kids, listen, I want to tell you something about about what's going on there. There are two kinds of kids in high school. There, there are those desperately trying to get into the cool crowd and figure out a way to get on the stage, and there's another set of, of kids that are desperately willing to do anything to stay in the cool crowd and stay on the stage, but there's not one of them that feels at peace. See, the, the, the real key to the addiction is something that David Burns noted. He's a psychologist. He said it's not another person's compliment or approval that makes us feel good. It's our belief that there is validity in their compliment. Let me give you an example. When I was a teenager, my grandmother was in a nursing home. So I would go to visit my grandmother in the nursing home. I got my driver's license. I was 17. I'd go there. And almost every time I'd walk in, hey, Graham, how are you? Whoever she was with they would always have the same compliment about me. They'd say, your grandson is so handsome. Now, here's the problem. It meant nothing to me. These were all 85-year-old, half-blind women, <laughs> right? I'm great with that crowd. I look fantastic, but when I went back to school, I still couldn't get on the stage. The reality is people's opinions are powerless until we validate them. No one's approval affects us until we give it credibility and status. And the same holds true, by the way, for their disapproval. That's why when this battle rages within us, when we're trying to clothe ourselves with something, we're worried about others and we grant their opi uh, others' opinions credibility in our lives, you will never, when you live this way, and we're all living this way at one level or another, when we live this way, we're never going to find any sense of inner peace because we're all clawing for the same approval. Don't believe me? Check, check this life assessment out. This is so fascinating to me. Here's, here's some pathetic loser that wrote this. I have done nothing. I have no ability to do anything that will live in the memory of mankind. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something should be the result of my existence beneficial to my own species. What pathetic loser See, all I've ever wanted was a plaque on the playground or something, right? Do you know what loser wrote this? John Quincy Adams. Because when you live this way, you'll never get what you're looking. There will be no peace. The battle is in here, and you're trying to clothe yourself. You, I'm naked. I've got to cover myself with something. I think a better diagnosis of the disease came from a more modern-day celebrity. Jim Carrey, who came through a whole bunch of depression, he wrote this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. So how do we get any victory over a primal need that is so deep? 
This is so interesting. I never saw this pointed out anywhere before. I believe I've discovered it, and I'm thinking about um, writing a book and patenting it. And then I realized I'm just doing the same thing right now, aren't I? Just trying to make myself a little bit of a, a thing. Uh, from the garden to the cross, there's been this battle against nakedness as we try with increasing desperation to clothe ourselves in something to create an identity that will bring us some worth. Here's what Paul writes. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. It's a statement of identity. You are a child of God. It is a statement of worth. How are you a child of God? Through faith, not by works, not anything that you've done so that you can boast about it. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, say it with me, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Isn't that fascinating? The problem is we're naked, and Jesus came to give us some clothes. Now, if you know anything about the story of the Apostle Paul, he suffered terribly trying to bring the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection around the world. And every time he would start a little church, all these religious guys would come in behind him. And they would discount everything that Paul said. Oh, Paul, he didn't know Jesus. You know, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let us explain to you how much more important we are and why you should listen to us. And Paul it would drive him crazy. And eventually, here's what he wrote. He goes, you know what? I care very little. Imagine this. Imagine living this way. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, and here's a real interesting thing. He goes, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. See, Paul came to understand what, other, what others were thinking about him didn't matter, and this is really important. What he also discovered is what he thinks about himself didn't matter either. And some of you need to hear that this morning. I'm going to repeat it. It is not only that what others think of you that does not matter. It's also whatever that voice is in your head that keeps telling you, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not a good enough dad. I'm not a good enough mom. I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough wife. I'm not a good enough Christian. Whatever that voice is, Paul goes, yeah, don't listen to that. He goes, I don't even listen to that one anymore. All I listen to is what God says about me. And why that's important is because God has a lot to say about you post-resurrection of Jesus. Paul said, look, if I, if I, if I judge myself, I don't, I'd be living a life of misery. I still do the things I don't want to do, and I do the things I shouldn't do. I have to rely on God. Here's a guy named Neil Anderson. He put together, he's got a theology degree and a counseling degree. Here's what he discovered. He goes, I began to discern discipling people to Christian maturity involved much more than leading through a step-by-step 10-week Bible study. We live in a country glutted with Bibles, Christian books, radios, televisions, but Christians are not growing to spiritual maturity. Some are, more, some are no more loving now than they were 20 years ago. I have found one common denominator for all struggling Christians. They do not know who they are, nor do they understand what it means to be a child of God. Is who you are determined by what you do? This is powerful, okay? Is who you are determined by what you do, or is what you do determined by who you are? Because I believe that your hope for growth, meaning, and fulfillment as a Christian is based on understanding who you are, your identity in Christ as a child of God, your understanding of who God is, why it would only be his opinion that matters, and who you are in relationship to him. See, in the kingdom of God, there, the success equals happiness and failure equals hopelessness. That equation doesn't exist. 
Everybody has the same opportunity for a meaningful life because wholeness and meaning in life doesn't come from what you've done. You are already a whole person and you possess the life of infinite meaning and purpose because of who you are. Yeah, I read a great, great quote one time. I, I never got out of my head. What if you woke up one day and you just realized the whole, it never really was a competition anyway? Do you know how freeing that is? You see, you already won. You're a child of God. The only identity equation that makes any sense in the kingdom of God is you plus Christ means wholeness. All of the work, all of the striving, all of I have to get there. Once I get there, I almost entitled the talk, there, what if there is no there, there? Once I get there, then I'll feel better about myself. Then I'll be something. Then people will perceive me a certain way. What if it's only God's opinion that really matters? And if it is, you really need to know how special you are. There's an old Tony Campolo story that speaks to this. I love it, so I'll share it with you. He said, when, I was, when speaking to young people, I always enjoy telling them this. Do you realize you were once a sperm? That's right. You were once a sperm, and you were one of five million sperm all together in a group. You remember? All of you lined up at the starting line, and at the end of a long, long tunnel, there lay one precious little egg. And there was a race, and you won. Stop to think about that for a moment. The odds were five million to one, and you came through. You're a winner, baby. You are here by divine appointment. Five million to one. You're no accident. Just think about it. If your mother had a headache that night, you wouldn't even exist. You are a very special person. Because, see, when you understand who you are in Christ, when you, when you clothe yourself in that, you can't consistently behave in ways that are inconsistent with the way you perceive yourself. You don't change yourself by your perception. You change your perception of yourself by believing the truth. And if you perceive yourself wrongly, you're going to live wrongly. Because your believing is not true. If you think you are a no-good bum, you are going to live like a no-good bum. If, however, you see yourself as a child of God, you will begin to live accordingly. If you think you need to clothe yourself in someone else's approval, you'll live that way. Most of us spend our whole lives living this way. But if you rest in the already given approval of God, if you at deep levels decide what he says of you is all that matters, you win the war. The war is over. Why are you still fighting? Next to the knowledge of God, the knowledge of who you are is the most important truth you can possess. One of the most frequently used words in all of the New Testament about people who have come to follow Jesus, who have decided Jesus is who he said he is, accepted him as our Savior, and they begin to follow him. Do you know what one of the most frequently used words is for those people? Saint. Literally meaning a holy person. Now, see, the tendency of the church over the years has been to say that saints are people that have earned a title by a magnificent life or by maturity. But that's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, can I tell you something interesting? This is really cool. The scriptures teach 
240 times in the King James Version of the Bible that those who follow Christ are saints. Why? God declared you so. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but that's how he sees you. You are a saint. Do you know how many times in the scripture people that have decided to follow Jesus have accepted him as a savior and are, are now living in Christ? Do you know how many times in the New Testament they're called a sinner? Zero. Because we got to start. God knows we live out of who we are. You're a saint. This is who you are. Let me ask you a question. Who told you you were naked? Paul would actually repeat this same question later on, and then he would answer it. He said, who would bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. It's God who clothes. Who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger? No. Even when it comes to sitting on the stage at Westmore Central, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You can be set free from an ancient addiction. But you have to know who you are. I'm going to close with this story because I think it just shows it so well. The band can come up. It's a story about a guy named Bill. And Bill was into the college scene. Much like many of us, many of the guys in the room, he saw himself back in his college days as a, a skin-wrapped package of salivary glands and taste buds and sex drives. And because that's how he saw himself, how did Bill occupy his time with this self-perception? Well, he ate and he chased girls. He ate everything in sight. Didn't matter what its nutritional value was, and he chased anything in a skirt. But Bill had this really special little gleam in his eye for a luscious-looking Susie, the cheerleader. See, Bill was chasing sweet little Susie around campus one day when the track coach noticed him and said, hey, you know, this kid can really run. And so when the coach finally caught up with him, he said, Bill, why don't you come out for the track team? Nah, Bill answered, kind of watching Susie out of the corner of his eye. I'm too busy. But the coach wasn't about to take no for an answer, so he finally convinces Bill to at least give track a try. So Bill starts working out with the track team, and, and he discovered that he really could run. And so he began to change his eating habits and his sleeping habits, and his skills got even better. Started winning some races and posting some times. Well, finally, Bill was invited to the big race at the state championship. He arrived at the track early to stretch and warm up. And then only a few minutes before his event, guess who shows up at the race? Sweet little Susie, looking more beautiful and desirable than ever. She pranced up to Bill in a scanty outfit that accentuated her finer, finer physical features. And in her hands was a sumptuous slice of apple pie with several scoops of ice cream piled on top. I've missed you, Bill, she sang sweetly. You know, if you come with me now, you can have all of this, and me too. No way, Susie, Bill responded. Why not, Susie pouted. Because I'm a runner. Who told you you were naked? I don't know, 
who told you that you had to be better. You don't. You won. You're a saint. The scriptures say you're chosen, loved, planned for, wanted, desired, forgiven, made in the image of God with a purpose and plan and bought at a price. You are not what they say you are. You are who he says you are. You are not naked. Listen to me. You're not naked. Stop trying to clothe yourselves in other things and getting addicted to the approval of others. You don't need to fall into that battle anymore because you're a runner. You're a child of God. Thank you.